You're listening to episode 28. Hey there, Business Generals family. Welcome to another super episode of the Business Generals podcast where I feature amazing guests and I ask in-depth questions about their entrepreneurial journey. You know, my belief is that it doesn't matter how your journey in life started. It's not that important because great or small, the important thing is how you finish. So whatever your situation today, I want you to know that you can get your hopes up, that you are good enough to chase your dreams. In today's show, family, I dig into how it all started for our feature guests, how they have built their brand, and I even get into all the juicy details about their big challenges, their growth moments, and all their big breakthroughs. So it's going to be an amazing show. I actually selfishly started this podcast because I love to hear how entrepreneurs did it, and I wanted to ask the questions for myself. So really... I am the number one student, so get ready for amazing coaching tips, family, to help you maximize your business dreams. Welcome and thank you for joining me here on the Business Generals Podcast, where I chat with amazing entrepreneurs five days a week. Davis Motabo here, your host. I am super excited to bring you today's feature guest, Mr. Charlie Webb. Charlie, are you ready to share your entrepreneurial story? I sure am. Fantastic. Well, Charlie owns a company called Vanderstall Scientific, which deals with medical device packaging um, and commands a very strong share of their market. Um, he has used unique uh, marketing methods to grow their brand. It's a great story, and I'm looking forward to diving into it. Charlie, super pumped to have you here. Welcome to the show. Uh, before we get stuck into your story, maybe just take 30 seconds and tell us who is Charlie outside of business. Well, you know, the uh, big part of um, my life is, <laughs> this sounds like a dating show, but a big part of my life is hiking. Um, you know, we're lucky to be here in Southern California, Santa Barbara County, and we have a lot of great uh, hiking. So my whole staff, our group is centered around um, our sort of what we call ambulatory think tanks, our ability to walk around and hike in the morning, get some exercise in, and um, take more of a, a unique approach to uh, problem solving and team building. So, um, you know, that's it. I'm, um, uh, my uh, wife uh, works with her company as well, so I have the opportunity to work with a loved one, which is terrific, and um, mm-hmm. stay pretty busy. We, I travel quite a bit um, for recreation and uh, hiking trips typically, but, uh, you know, I'm a pretty active guy that um, uh, just enjoying life. Mm. Well, that's great. And how long would you say you've been in business full-time for yourself, Charlie? You know, really probably in the last 30 years, I'd say 28 of those years um, has been working for myself. And it probably isn't a testament to my great entrepreneurship, but more of my inability to work for somebody. So and I think a lot of entrepreneurs share that where, um, you know, they when you feel like you know um, the path to go, then the best thing to do is to prove it out yourself through an enterprise. And so for me, um, I've uh, I've enjoyed the uh, the opportunity to be able to work for myself and to test my uh, systems and ideas out. And uh, uh, happily, it's worked out well for me. Well, that's great. Um, what are your core revenue streams um, or sources, rather, Charlie? So we sell to the industrial sort of uh, B two B sort of an enterprise where we're selling to medical device manufacturers. So all the manufacturers, which are lion's share done in the United States, we are the uh, the sort of tertiary or last step of the sterile device packaging side, and we're in the machine side of. Uh, sterile package and our small company um, has a pretty wide reach. We are responsible for about a hundred million sterile transfers per day. So when you go into surgery or the doctor's office and they open up that pouch, uh, that sterile barrier system system as we call it, um, we have a system and, and several patents on uh, machinery that that I've developed that uh, assure that that device is going to be safe and sterile. That is very interesting. Do you know when I was actually reading up on your story, I was thinking, this sounds like a story that I heard about here in Australia. And uh, it's actually exactly that business. I can't remember where I read it, but they do exactly the same thing. And they started like 30 years ago. It's a family business. And they've done really well. So so that's quite interesting. So essentially, um, just to break it down a little bit more, um, if, if somebody's going to the operating theater, they bring out that pouch or the packet that's come through your office for quality control. Is that what I'm hearing? 
Now, so we make the machinery that, uh, uh, actually, we have the machinery made for us under our engineering design and patents. And so that machinery goes to the medical device companies worldwide. And so when they're in that last stage of closing up that device, uh, they use our uh, machinery that uses microprocessors and advanced sensors and transducers, all to make sure that um, that when that bag is open, that it goes safe. I mean, the thing to remember is, uh, according to the World Health Organization, something like a uh, half a billion people uh, die from these uh, nosocomial infections that are caused by hospital uh, staff in MRSA. So, in the United States, it's around a hundred thousand. So. We really have a, a broad reach. We don't really, it's difficult for us to find a good metric to use to find out what our reach is. But we can imagine several thousand lives saved per year um, by thwarting these type of infections through our technology. So we're proud of that. Well, congratulations on that. Um, now, Charlie, you have a business education background. How did the journey as an entrepreneur start out for you and how do you end up doing what you're doing now you know i've had a, a couple of um run-ins with business even as a young guy i was the i was the kid pushing the lawnmower down the street uh and doing lawns for five bucks a lawn so i've always um had that desire to get out and make things happen and have a little bit of money to go play with uh, the story that you may have heard through a, a other program which i'm which i think is really has a a lot of foundation in terms of of my story is when i was in college up in san Luis obispo california i uh Everyone was getting um, uh, student loans and, and grants and working at uh, McDonald's and those sort of uh, McJobs, as we like to call them here. And, uh, you know, that I was uh, 20 years old, and I just felt like there had to be a better way than that. And what I, I was driving past a parking lot <clears throat> full of these uh, soda machines. In 1980, we were transitioning from can machines, uh, bottle machines rather, to can machines. So I took my student loan and effectively bought the parking lot full of these uh, bottle soda machines and I called it classical vending because a lot of people didn't want to see the, the, the old glass bottles go away. It was nostalgic and they, they were just thought the can was uh, you know a little Orwellian. They just didn't like the whole idea of, of moving away from the bottle. So um, I placed those all up and down the coast, uh, central coast of California, and uh, I would be sitting in the commons while all my friends were getting back from their, their terrible jobs, and everyone would ask me, gosh, don't you have to be at work? And I'm like, well, I have this passive income, and I love that term, passive income, <laughs> something that makes money that doesn't require you to be right there is so intriguing to me, and I would pay my rent in bags of quarters. So... That, I think, stuck with me over my career, the idea that you could have this off-board revenue stream and that you could build the machine first. And when you build a good machine and oil that machine and care for it, uh, it'll produce revenue for you without you constantly having to be over. I mean, I have physician friends of the highest level of education, and they're all intrigued by the fact that they, they say every single dollar that I make is at a point of a customer. So they don't have the ability to scale their education and how unfortunate for them. You, you can't, you can only be one place at a time. Um, similarly with a restaurant, you know, you have a 38 inch opening where humanoids have to come into your enterprise and, um, you you know pretty much have to be at that location there. So, other uh, revenue streams for me that excite me are the ability to 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 have a worldwide reach or a broad reach that is working through my machine system that I don't have to constantly tend. Uh, don't get me wrong; it takes a lot of oiling. You have to manage that machine once you build it. But for young entrepreneurs, you know, my recommendation is you know what sort of uh, machine can you build that can scale. And that can continue to work that doesn't require you to constantly um, be out, uh, you know, burning sh uh, shoe leather. I mean, that's that's a challenge. And uh, when we're young in our you know, 20s and 30s, we have no problem saying, I got, I'm full of energy. I'll go out and, uh, you know, 11-hour days on a plane all the time or no problem. Trust me, as you get older, that starts to wane and you appreciate the work that you do in these early years. That's, that's very good wisdom, and thanks for, for sharing that. How did the idea come about for you, um, and how did you know you could execute on it and therefore persevered in those early years? 
Well, you know, I think um, people tend to be, uh, I, I mean, I always hate to give the advice to not think too much, but sometimes, you know, we do think. Uh, too much. I mean, if you look historically in a lot of entrepreneurs, I mean, we have a lot of C students there. So it's great to be an A student and we, the world needs A students. But sometimes, you know, we can get to what's you know been widely called the paralysis of analysis. We sit there and think an enterprise through to the point ad, ad absurdum. And when you look at something through that critical lens, you may be edified. You may find some kernels of valuable data. But sometimes uh, you get into this, uh, what we call in my empirical lab, data haze, where we have so much information, we're unable to interpret the data. So, you know, sometimes there's a lot of that sort of hunch that goes with an idea. I bet you if I did this, this will work. And I've always had a lot of hunches that uh, I had no problem. Luckily for me, I started, and, and someone who hasn't been in sales I really recommend that they start this journey and an entrepreneurial journey in sales for for one big important reason. If you can't take rejection and disappointment, it's not a entrepreneurialism is not a pathway for you for sure. You have to understand that um, there are so many um, failures and stumbles and didn't work along the way. And it's very difficult for young people that haven't had, or really anyone who went leaving corporate uh, uh, job or coming out of college, they they were the the great student. If they did this and this, they would get this result. So they become so um, oriented with this process that if they leave that process, that is more you know chicken bone and mood ring sort of thinking opposed to hard analytical data it's difficult for them to persevere so you know learn to um, be rejected i mean it's it's uh it's one of the most important lessons not only in business but in your own personal human development i think mm. so so we so coming back to you know so you've gone through that sales background and you've worked out i can take rejection um so you've you've got an idea to say you're going to create this machine, right? Um, how did you come up with that and how do you execute on it? Well, you know, first thing to do is, um, you know, we, we use a lot of um, our companies, you know, moves towards a, a sort of a, a Six Sigma model where, you know, we, we take analytical data because I own an ISO 17025 accredited laboratory. And so our world is all about data collection. So, Although you should go on the hunch, you know, the first thing you want to do is to get the data. What, where is the market going? Um, but, you know, before I answer that, I think it's important, to, again, to remember is that just because something is showing that there is value or the trend is here, um, you know, Seth Godin, uh, you know, has said uh, before, uh, the author Seth Godin, uh, that, you know, if you've identified, if you're moving into a, uh, a product line or an industry that you've identified there's a need, oftentimes it's already filled by then. So, you know, you have to have some data to know where to point your gun. But at the same time, you know, you can't... Uh, you can't just rest on that data and you can't go just hunch as a hybrid. So, you know, find out the area that you believe is your best step forward, whether, and, and that has to do with what your own individual capabilities are. So, based on your capabilities, based on where the marketing is going, and based on your hunch, you triangulate that into some sort of um, an effort and move forward. I mean, honestly, in the United States, our customer care has become so terrible that um, it, it's, it's just epic. We've lost civility. You could take almost any industry in the U.S. and re-spin it back with a better delivery system. Remember, a lot of times it's not the hula hoop. It's not the iPad or the iPod or the latest gadget du jour. A lot of times it isn't the thing. It's the delivery. I mean, at the end of the day, I sell machinery that comes together and heats up a bag doesn't not very romantic right but when you start adding in all the peripheral uh gifts we'll call them in my industry where i'm providing free calibration we're helping on technology we have a regulatory liaison we're giving them everything so i'm taking a very banal product very sort of humdrum gray vanilla 
and I'm turning it into this technicolor, wonderful masterpiece. And I'm doing that through delivery. So, you know, a lot of times, uh, you know, you just look at what you want to do uh, delivered differently. Too many people get hung up on what's the next big idea. The next big idea is your idea. It's whatever you want to do. Don't look too much outside of your own belief system and what you see in the own your own research that you've developed. Just, you know... Have the strength to go out and push hard, but don't make this mistake that a lot of um, entrepreneurs do. Um, <clears throat> I met a guy the other day at the uh, the car wash of all places, and he was telling me how we got talking about patents, and I have several patents. And he said, uh, I just came up with a patent for a, uh, a self-rescue device for water skiing. And I said, well, that's interesting. What made you do Well, I'm a, I'm a water skier, and I could see where this is an improvement. And I looked at his patent, and it had about a 2% increase of value over what's currently available. That's, a, that's dead. So his mistake was that he wanted to do something centered around his own personal interest. And I'm not saying you, if you like coffee, go open up a coffee shop. I mean, I guess that's okay. But <clears throat> I, I, didn't, I don't have a passion for machine you know packaging machines I have a passion for business I have a passion for delivering quality to people and making them happy that you have to identify what your core goal is is it to what and I think that's a mistake you know don't just go into an area that you like just because it's one of your interests and then try to make business work around it you're doing it backwards mm -hmm. that's that's good um so how did you then end up finding your very first clients? See, in the early days when I started Vanderstall, I was in a about a 700-square-foot cabin in the mountains and uh, dirt poor. Uh, I was working on a plywood uh, desk that I, that I cut out and uh, made a little place for me to sit in it. Uh, the internet at that time didn't exist. I was running on a, you know, the uh, DOS prompt uh, computer that didn't even have a hard drive. It worked off of a floppy target disk. No fax machine and one telephone line. And I had to do, um, you know, what a lot of us in those early days had to do, sans all of the technology that we have now. I mean, I would have killed for the phone systems that we have and the, the internet and the ability to, uh, to organically have companies find me without any sort of uh, ad revenues. I mean, right now you guys all live in this amazing universe. So I, I literally just started dialing for dollars. I got on the phone. Uh, I was able to get a hard cover of the Thomas Register, which is this uh, about a 200-pound volume of books. Um, and with a, uh, a highlighter, I started down the list and calling um, in the early days, I started out as a consulting company, getting uh, medical devices into hospitals until I could find a client. And then I worked with my client doing the same thing. So it was uh, it was the, in those early days, you know, you really have to push so hard. And I think a lot of criticism that I have for um, some of the young uh, entrepreneurs that I know now, I think they got a little spoiled by a lot of our technology and they're trying to put everything on autopilot a little too soon. I mean, you, you have to ride this thing through yourself. So that's exactly what I did. I just literally dialed the phone and called one number at a time until I slowly built up connections. And those connections built more connections. I attended trade shows because... Um, you know, those were easy to get in. I would sneak in the back door because I didn't have the $200 to get inside the show sometimes and just uh, hand out my card. And, you know, that is the sort of uh, genesis that makes uh, a business strong because I never go whistling past the graveyard. I never for a moment think that all is well. And fear is an incredible motivator so long as it's not uh, uh, developed in a, in a sick way. Uh, but a healthy way, uh, fear is an important part. It keeps, it keeps us alive. So, uh, you know, you have to have uh, a fear of, uh, of falling, but you have to have that, you know, something, something that gets you doing the hard work. I mean, the people who are um, making it are doing things that people who aren't making it uh, are doing. I mean, Brian Tracy said, um, successful people do what's hard and necessary and the losers do nothing. So if you were doing what's hard and necessary, you're going to navigate towards uh, new customers, new clients, but you really have to not, I mean, I, I had a, uh, a friend of mine who decided to go into business 
And so he was able to get a small business loan um, for around $50,000. He opened up an office. He furnished it with, you know, seven desks and chairs and all the things that looked like a successful business and um, with no clients. And unfortunately, um, you know, you the, the gods don't align and say, oh, this looks like a successful company. Let's make it successful. You know, I can't tell you enough about bootstrapping and the value of bootstrapping. I would have never used that money towards that kind of infrastructure. I would have used it on marketing and uh, and doing um, things that would bring sales in. I don't care whether or not I have a pretty desk. So that's the thing is, uh, you know, getting off your high horse initially, and that's blowing your money on, on image. Image is something you earn. You can't buy it. Yeah, that's very good. Um, do you know what's interesting is I'm, I'm thinking here, um, how did you then end up finding, so you morphed out of a consultancy business into, I guess, what you're doing now, I'm assuming. And, and do you use outside manufacturers or do you manufacture the equipment yourselves? And how do you go about doing that process of finding a good, good manufacturer or any of your major suppliers, for instance, that are crucial to your business growth? Yeah, so we, um, you know, it just like uh, if you take the uh, the iPhone, you know, the iPhone as Americans, we see that as a very American product. Globally, it's a Chinese product, right? It's built in China, but it's imagined in San Francisco. So a lot of times, you know, it's remember, it's the idea where things are made are not near as important. So we have the patent and the technology. Uh, we make some of our machinery in uh, Germany and some of it in Japan. Uh, through incredible vendor partnerships that um, are literally these people are our friends. They come to our home. Um, these are not these sort of sterile, uh, sort of third, you know, uh, level kind of relationships. These are very, very strong family-like relationships that I have with my vendors. There, I have their back. They have mine. <clears throat> we all have a shared interest of providing quality uh, uh, equipment uh, into the. Uh, uh, the healthcare uh, manufacturing or medical device manufacturing uh, call point. So we have a shared interest. And, uh, and to, to answer your question, when I started out as a consultant, and that's an interesting thing about consulting. A lot of times when you start there, you you see what the clients are doing and you see, wow, you know, I could do that. with. I'd like to be part of that. And that's basically what happened with um, my company. I was called on to help distribution of a product that needed a lot of help. But in order to do it, I'd have to be all in. And to be all in, I would have to be part of the business, which I did. So I became a uh, first a distributor and then a co-developer. And, and that was really the genesis of Vanderstahl Scientific. So we um, now we're an engineering company, we're an empirical laboratory, and we keep on adding new parts to our company. And that's the other thing. It's when you never know what direction is going to go. You have to always keep your eyes open to see where where is this taking me and a lot of enterprises where people have started a sandwich shop ended up being a pizza shop down the street you, you need to keep your eyes open and not get sentimental about any part of your business at any position because that may change and uh, I was happy to close down my consulting practice I enjoyed consulting but uh, it also never really was very satisfying because if I created a big win I did it for my clients and I just felt like I was left outside at the curb. So when I took on uh, the company and went in myself, now I'm part of it. And every political system, every religion knows if you want to have followers, the followers have to be vested. And um, that's a good point when you're when you're looking at new vendors. I mean, you're looking at a partnership. This isn't someone you're going to buy from. This is someone that you're going to have a relationship. And do they share your vision? Do they share your vision of fair trade? Do they share your vision of quality uh, control? Um, do they share your you know financial goal and vision? Are they an ethical company? And all of those uh, ducks need to be in a row before you choose that vendor. And really, I recommend that you, if you are going to use an outside vendor for, for products, that you have sort of a constitution, if you like, or a, a sort of bill of rights. And you want to list down what are 
these important attributes of a good business partner because make no mistake about it, the vendor is your partner. And uh, make sure that they fulfill all of those requirements. You don't want to work somebody that you you don't feel wholeheartedly uh, is a solid company with the same, you know, not only the same uh, business vision, but maybe even the, the same sort of, you know, philosophical view on life and um, those sort of things because you, you want to be connected. And that, you know, that joint DNA is what makes a great partnership. Yeah, I love that. Um, I'm enjoying this. Um, I want to pick up on something that I've heard you talk about before, and this is around um, growing growing your business and finding, um, you know, what you were referenced as the big R uh, being uh, irreplaceable or replaceability risk. Uh, could you talk about that and how how you you coach people today, or how you you essentially build that into your into your system today to make sure you can grow and and I guess not have that risk to, to be replaced too quickly by a competitor. Right. So here, you know, we even talk about moat building. And when you have a, a business and you're building it, um, you know, if you're building a, uh, a new restaurant in town, we're here in uh, Santa Barbara County with some of the best uh, restaurants in the country, the world, really. So, you know, what I see is I see these come up. You, you in, in show business, they talk about the triple threat. You have to sing and you have to dance and you have to act. So if you're easy to be replaced, then obviously you're, um, you're an organization that's ill. You know, when we, when we talk about an immune system for us personally, it's our, our immune system that helps to fight against the in, invading viruses and bacteria. And it's exactly the same way when it comes to business. So if we don't have a good immune system, then we're easily knocked off our block and kills our company. So when we talk about moat building here at Vandersall Scientific, we're talking about how do you be so unreplaceable that there is absolutely no choice. Now, you're not doing this in any sort of a, um, you know, a hierarchy sort of a, a way. You're doing it in a way that's healthy and normal. You're saying, hey, if you're looking for this, there is no other choice but us. We, um, a lot of our competition uh, doesn't mix. We, we start out with amazing built equipment that's just beautiful. The second tier is we start out with equipment that is technologically at its highest, the most advanced sensors. So we're starting out with the nucleus of our moat building or the replaceability dynamic with machinery that's very, very difficult to uh, replace. But then we build that in uh, as we as we zoom out, uh, we're providing them uh, an accredited laboratory for their calibrations. We're providing the best turnaround, uh, tech support, regulatory services. So we've added in so many layers that you you can't do it. I, mean, I always use this example. I think I get beat up for using this one, but in relationships, if you were a man, let's say for instance, and you're trying to find uh, uh, someone to marry you. Uh, and this person, the person that you're seeking is in high demand and your customers are in high demand. Make no mistake about it. So if they're in high demand, how do you, if we're talking about marketing myself to a potential mate, how do I win? Well, you win by layering. You layer attributes like you do in business. Not only am I a hard worker, but I take care of myself. I'm um, appreciative. I'm adventurous. And so as that list building continues and you are those things, you become more and more intriguing to your target market, just like in a relationship or in business. So the more your restaurant is not only serving clean food, that's the first thing. I mean, keep in mind, um, that sounds like it goes without saying. Yet worldwide, a lot of people are dying from foodborne disease because people don't even care to, to, to take their food to the table safely. So let's start at the very core. Now we assume that it's safe. Is it palatable? Is it delicious? So if we meet that now, what is the ambiance? Is it a nice place? Now we got to talk about service. We used to go to a place uh, in a city that I, I used to live in that had remarkable food. But because their service was so repellent, we could no longer go there. What a shame, right? What a shame that they would push people away because they missed one of the accesses of 
service. Uh, my identical twin brother, uh, Nick Webb, who is a speaker on innovation, he has a book called What Customer Craves right now on Amazon. You know, he talks about endlessly about these these just non-ending customer uh, business interactions that are so failed. That's why I said at the beginning of this, you can take just about any product that of your cho- choosing and you can de- if you develop it through just being a lady or gentleman and, and being courteous and being empathetic and just being I mean there was a time where these things were just absolutely uh, expected we, we always assume that when you go to a restaurant the, the server is going to be nice right anymore we, we can't expect anything we can't expect the food to be clean we can't expect it to be good we can't expect for it to be priced correctly so it, it surprises me when I see these new restaurants come into town and the amount of money that they spend in our expensive real estate market to develop this beautiful restaurant. On the other end of it, we've seen another one here. Beautiful restaurant. Great aviance. It's a part of a hotel here in town. And uh, the food was terrible. And the service was bad. So, you know, you, you have to, if you want to, to avoid the dangers of that big R, the replaceability of your product or service, you have to start asking yourself, who, how do I surround the product or service that I offer? How can I add in more layers to this moat building concept that Vanderstahl uses that, um, I mean, when, when we have a customer calling us and they're calling around our competitors to find out, uh, you know, whether they should go with us uh, or competition, after they understand what we provide, there's no question. The call comes right back to us and we get the order. We probably get, uh, you know, way more than our share despite us being a smaller player. We get far more the market share than all of our competitors do because we understand that if you uh, really do are serious about what you're offering, then offer it up in a beautiful way. Beauty is escaping us. I mean, we're, we're in a, a time of loss of civility. We have more angry people and uh, more uh, people that are just um, uh, unhappy in general, at least through my vista. And uh, the more we can, we, can, we can behave well and provide beauty back to our customers, and that's exactly our, our vision. How can I give you this beautiful equipment? And, and you know, we, we, just, we give you so many things that there's just absolutely no other choice than our company, and it's worked great. And it's not just a marketing trick. It's truly how we feel. It's, it's the, the absolute uh, mantra of our company. Mm. Yeah, that's um, that's a good lesson. Good lesson. Good business lesson there. Um, what would you say has been the biggest breakthrough moment in your in your business? You know, over the last I don't know twenty eight years that you say you've been in business. What happened in that moment? Well, you know, I think um, the the regulatory you know climate is, is is sort of changing to where they they expect more under the this sterile barrier uh, process to make sure everybody doesn't die uh, through uh, these nosocomial infections. And so, you know, as the regulatory climate uh, becomes more rigid, we're, we're a much better choice. And I think, you know, some of our technology with patents that help to make sure that happens. We have a system that firewalls um, pouches so they can't leave the medical device manufacturer without being tested, things like that. I, I think those have been on the, the core sort of, you know, business side have been, you know, absolutely just vital to that next jump up. But, you know, moreover, I, I think when I really stopped to, to listen to customers, I think that was the real breakthrough. And I know that sounds a little Pollyanna and generic, but what, what I, I remember a customer calling me once and saying, you know, we'd like to get our machine up, but um, we need it calibrated. And in our industry, that's a requirement. And I said, yeah, I'm sorry, we don't do the calibration. And I'll, I'll never forget the customer saying, that is absolutely insane that you would sell something that requires a calibration and yet you don't offer it. And I remember getting off the phone thinking, oh, you know, what a jerk. This guy's going to tell me how to run my business. And to be able to stop and listen to that customer uh, was a really important uh, step, uh, a paradigm really for, for my business development. And just about a month later, we, we call it the Van Dalk imperative here. A customer, an engineer, a young guy, a pilot, um, and a mechanical engineer, super bright guy, I mean, one of the brightest people I've ever talked to. I just enjoyed his call. Went through a lot of criticism about the way we were delivering our machines and what we didn't have. 
And again, before my big entrepreneur ego would just say, ah, this guy's a jerk. I'm not going to listen to that. But because of that previous call and his, uh, the Vandal call, we'll call it, I I realized that I I need to take those hard lessons, listen to what my clients have, and do something about it. And from that point on, we are are we always talk about the Van Dyke, uh imperative here because it's it's so important for us to say, hey, what's the customer saying? And the reason that's so important, I'm sure you filled out customer surveys, and after this call, we're going to send you to a customer survey and survey, survey, survey. We are obsessed with surveys. Unfortunately, the obsession stops when it comes to the action side of surveys. So if you go to a hotel and had a terrible experience, which you almost always do in the States, at least for me, most restaurants um, are, are a failure, uh, the experiences that I have. I mean, I'm, in, I'm a Six Sigma black belt, which means uh, it's a type of a quality control system that I believe very much in, and I'm at the highest level of, of um of that uh, sort of process. And Six Sigma is, is important because it's, it's what keeps airplanes aloft and it's what gets rockets into space. But we don't even use anything similar when it comes to the more banal day-to-day sort of activities. And so we, we're rounding the corners too much. And the, the one problem that you see with a lot of uh, uh, entrepreneurs is they're following a system that somebody else is doing and they're delivering it the same way. Go the extra mile. Redevelop craftsmanship. You know, craftsmanship is is dead effectively. So when you're when you're able to put back in, uh, you know, attention to detail, then your whole world gets better. It gets better personally, and it gets better in terms of how your clients view you because. Um, even though there's maybe a smaller fraction of people who are the the most anally retentive people in your your uh, audience, it's still worth shooting to pleasing the most critical. What we tend to do is we tend to slough off the people that are most critical and we go to the ugly gray middle and just deal with the people who are willing to um, to suck in our our you know. Uh, terrible customer service and our terribly uh, built products. So attention to detail and craftsmanship. I mean, if you're going to start an enterprise and do it, make it beautiful. Mm-hmm. I love that answer. Um, there's something that you talked about and um, we're coming to the top of the hour. So I'm just going to ask you to maybe briefly touch on it. And I don't know whether you actually went ahead with it, but you you, you, you were looking at going back to an old model of marketing uh, for your business and you, I think you acquired a motorhome um, and you were going to be doing something akin to door knocking. Um, could you talk me through that story and let me know whether it's something that actually did happen or whether that was just a thought that was there at the time? Yeah, yeah. We actually we did we um, we purchased a uh, a huge uh, motorhome that uses the big semi truck, um, or you call it caravan, big big uh, commercial truck motorhome, and uh, for a year we traveled in that, and uh, we would make stops um, at customers' facilities and uh, stop in and chat with them about the product. We are moving. We we didn't go as deep on that as. Uh, we would like to just because, you know, a lot of these big ideas, and this is a perfect example of them, you know, sometimes I get a little ahead of myself with these great grandiose um, projects and I picture myself in this sort of uh, whistle-stop sort of campaign to talk about sterile packaging. And because a lot of things were pulling me back to my office um, regarding our accreditation for our laboratory, we really didn't go as deep. But now we're we're sort of blowing the dust off that again. And um, we, we will pick that back up and uh, uh, get back out there and do that very uh, thing. I mean, it was a it was a very kind of grassroots approach to um, seeing our customers, and um, it was novel. And the people who uh, were interested in it thought it was a, the greatest idea. Uh, but you know, sometimes it's a, a the lesson I got from that. I think, and I'm not saying it's a failure. It was a failure. It worked out great. We just didn't reach as far as we would have liked to because there were some logistical things that I didn't probably look deep enough in. But that's kind of been my approach.
approach a lot of times. I'm, I'm kind of a ready, shoot, aim person that will just go by the seat of my pants sometimes. And sometimes it always doesn't work out that great. But overall, it was a, it was a terrific experience. I mean, traveling for a year on a corporate camping trip. I mean, what's wrong with that? I mean, it was awesome. So we had a great time. It was a lot of fun. Didn't get out as far as we'd like to. On the next, uh, we I, I did sort of a post-mortem on the trip at the end and sort of looked at, okay, what could be better on the next one? So in the next round that hopefully we'll be able to do uh, sometime in 2000, uh, late 17 or 18, uh, will be sort of a, a more expanded uh, version. And um, But that one, uh, it was fun. I think it was a good idea. And any chance you have to go out and reach out like we used to. I mean, you got to remember, I'm, a, I'm 58 years old. And so I come from a different time. And, you know, our back in our day, there was no cell phones. And when we reached people, we did it at trade shows. And we were walking, you know, we were up, we were getting on airplanes and we were flying to clients uh, facility. There was no Skype. There was none of those things. So I come from a time where it made sense to go out and actually be a human and go see another human. And I advocate that more than um, one of my pet peeves is, you know, just endless messaging. And, you know, I'm a person that if you have something to say to me, pick up the phone and let's talk. I can, in two minutes, I can tell you more than you can text me for the next half hour. So I think we need to kind of pull, you know, it's great that we have that kind of, you know, sort of ad hoc ability to shoot a message off real quick. But a lot of the things I believe as part of the the human side of this that have been developed through anthropology, I think a lot of that is um, affected. I think we we need that connection. And I think, you know, the handshake and let me come out to your facility. Let me see what you guys are doing. You know, I, I urge younger people particularly to um, to sort of rediscover the the beauty and the sensibility uh, attached to more one-on-one uh, interactions with your customers and clients. Mm, that's great. Now, I want to bring this to, to a final close. I guess I've got a couple, couple of questions that I'll ask you to maybe give me some soundbite answers as we go to, to the top of the hour here, um, Charlie. So how do you rank the following, if at all, faith, fun, family, finances, and friendships? Well, for me, you know, family is uh, is everything. I'm I, I have a nine year old um, boy. I have older kids that have moved out, but we have a, a nine year old, and so you know, as an older dad, I, I want to spend a lot of time with my son. So um, you know, fun in family is um, is it. I I think all the uh, things that you do follow in concentric rings out from that. And you know, not to sound corny here, but you know, really, um, what's the point? One of my biggest pet peeves and is. Uh, is the 10-hour work days and, and, and people beating their chests uh, about how, how many hours they put in. You know, now it's becoming that, um, that time is the new sort of monetary note. So if I can pay an employee by giving them more free time, it's far better than a bonus. Uh, for me, I get up at about 3 o'clock in the morning and I work till around 9 or 10 o'clock. And then I'm pretty much done for the day other than taking on a few meetings here and there. But... Um, I'm I'm not one. I'm really proud to tell everybody. I mean, I have people that uh, didn't even know I had a job. So if you can create your enterprise to where it looks looks like you're unemployed, <laughs> except you don't live in a place that looks like you're unemployed. But if you can, you know, live your life. I mean, I, I, one thing I can tell you is being, you know, for your younger listeners. When we did that trip in the motorhome, we I had a chance to speak with a lot of senior citizens, and the same thing. I, it was so depressing to see this over and over again. They waited to the end of their life to start enjoying it, and so they went through the nine to five. They had their job, and now they're sixty eight years old. They're going to get the big motorhome, but guess what? You can't windsurf very well at sixty eight. So as a result of that, these people have they gave away their life. Uh, for what they saw was prudent. And I look at fun, uh, you know, exercise for me. I, I hike every day or trail run with my wife. And I get out and do something every day. I never, ever am home on a weekend. I go out and play. So you have to remember that, you know, uh, happy people engender happy things and pretty things. Uh, people who are overworked and stretched, they stress, they're the ones that have soggy pizzas and terrible customer service. So <clears throat> the first thing you can do for yourself and for, you know, really your, uh, your enterprise is to not overclock yourself and to <clears throat> make a, 
make fun and family uh, a nutrient. And when you look at it as your daily vitamin, and these are the things that you have to do. I mean, I, people are like, gosh, I'd like to exercise more, but, you know, I just don't have time. I'm working 10 hours. It's like you, you have a broken life. The first thing you have to do is let's fix your life for you. I mean, I, if I had enough time, I would love to be a life coach because I, I create a, a life that is just magic. And um, that's why, you know, <clears throat> I'm now getting you know back into um, some business consulting and marketing consulting. But the, you know, the, the real goal is to have a happy life and an enterprise that people like. No one wants to have an enterprise that people hate. You don't want mad customers. So, you know, again, happy people make that. Make uh, fun uh, a part of your company. That's why during the day, um, I have a million photographs of uh, Lisa, who my wife, who is also our, our general manager, you know, on these hiking trails. And we're taking care of the business when we're looking at where we're in the middle of the Los Padres National Forest. Um, and we're happy. They, when they call on that, when, during our hike in the morning, they're talking to happy people. So, you know, be happy and create nice things because you you're happy. And uh, again, you know, that's that's the catalyst to every good enterprise is mentally normal, happy people. Mm. Well, very interesting. And uh, I love the fact that you're big on lifestyle. Um, I was going to ask you, give us a look uh, into a day in your life when you started your business versus a day in your life today. You've told us what the day in your life today looks like. Is that the same as when you started your business? Well, you know, as a young guy, I um, I had to put in a lot more business. Like I said at the beginning of the show, I, you, you know, you have to build your machine. And, um, you know, to build the machine before it hooks up to all the conveyor belts and to get it going to where it goes into it, and you can flip the switch onto the automatic mode, you first have a lot of work to do up front. So... I'm not saying that, um, you know, you should jump into your business and then go run around hiking all day and wondering why the phone's not ringing. But you do have to work in those early days to get the machine working and to see how it's going to scale. So my early days, I was I was working way more hours. And um, although I did always integrate the fun and the hikes and even in my, uh, my uh, early 30s, late 20s. So those... These days, I you know I, I get to enjoy the fruits of my labor. I get to enjoy the machine that I built long ago, patents that I created, uh, customers I put in place, uh, vendors that I've developed um, relationships with, and so I get to enjoy the the fruits of that that labor. So from then and now, there's a, a lot less of that hard. Um, you know, hammering that I did in the early days, and that's normal. That's part of the maturation process of an enterprise. Mm. Well, what's the best way, um, Charlie, for people to connect with you and hear more about, um, you know, what you're up to? Well, our company, you can kind of peek in if you just have a curiosity of what I do, and that's uh, vanderstall.com. And um, I, my email address is charlie at vanderstall.com. Um, you know, we're, as I mentioned, I'm just now um, moving into a... Um, a consulting practice to help uh, companies get into new markets and new product development, those sort of um, uh, areas. Again, I have a little bit of free time, so I'm, I'm going to take on some limited uh, clients. So the best way just to kind of peek in if you want to see my enterprise, <clears throat> Vanderstall, which is a, a beautiful company that creates just uh, amazing product delivered through a, a great system. And uh, as I said in the beginning, I'm very proud of the fact that we've offered so many um, great solutions for critical packaging to where we're, we're helping the industry deliver surgical implantables um, into the surgical uh, uh, suite or theater and uh, able to do so uh, safely. It's, it's a huge accomplishment. It's a complicated industry. And um, that's uh, uh, probably the best way to kind of look into what I'm doing now. Amazing. Well, Charlie, before I ask my final question and wrap up the show, I just want to acknowledge you for all the work that you've done in the medical industry and for pursuing you know, your dreams, um, which has helped others do the same. And now for my last question, um, you know, what are the, uh, actually my last two questions, the greatest two books that you would recommend very quickly for entrepreneurs. And then, you know, when it's all said and done, what legacy do you want to see for yourself and tell us why? So, you know, books are interesting for me because as a hiker, um, 
when people ask me what have I read lately, it's more of what have I listened to lately. In the 80s, you know, Nightingale Conan provided all these great business tomes and books uh, through audio tapes and moved into um, I, I, uh, podcasts like this that are terrific. Uh, you know, a great book for me, and I listen to all of Seth Godin stuff. Anything from Seth Godin is a win. He's a very, very bright futurist and uh, really understands um, uh, much more of a realistic way that business is moving, opposed to a lot of, you know, more generic books that I see that are that are fairly dated. So I get the Seth Godin uh, blog in my inbox every morning. <clears throat> uh, his book, The Icarus Deception, is, is fantastic, particularly for people who are coming into uh, – a new enterprise or, or leading um, a corporation. So those are, you know, that, that's a fabulous book. Chasing Cool uh, is a book I'm, I'm uh, listening to right now on my hikes that is uh, very well written, very interesting. I, I'm not so sure there's a huge takeaway, but it really uh, uh, allows you to sort of uh, think in terms of what people are, are, are hungry for. But, you know, now we're in a time where we don't even think in terms, at least I don't so much in what's, you know, what's great, what's a, a piece of dialogue that you've listened to or read lately. I have a habit of going into a lot of, I'm a periodical lover. And I, I dance around my little education thing every morning because I believe in continuing education and our industry is required. So I, I like I like reading, I like blogs, I like uh, relevant information about my industry. You can get um, where you may read, you know, five chapters of a business book. You can read six blogs that are diversified and that are custom fit for your area of interest. So I really move away from a lot of um, uh, books there. It's almost a, an, an antiquated format, in my opinion, with so many disconnected ways to be able to get uh, data and to custom uh, your what you're reading. Um, I, I really am a, am a big um, listener of books and um, uh, podcasts such as, as this. And uh, I just really think the best thing to do is bookmark about six or seven of your favorite uh, blogs or industry, uh, reliable um, industry uh, uh, trades. And uh, that's the best way, in my opinion, to go to that salad bar to get your data. Right. And then let's talk about legacy to finish it off. You know, for me, I uh, my company's 21 years old. I have a nine-year-old son that um, I'm hoping Vanderstahl will continue on to the future. Right now, I'm, I'm putting a good hard spin on the flywheel to try to move towards um, a company that is going to scale and is going to be a 100-year-old legacy, and there'll be a picture of me on the wall, our founder, Charlie Webb. <laughs> and so th- that's my goal. And I think for when you start a company, particularly when you have kids, you want to be uh, you want your company to be a legacy, and I want to be you know remembered for having a contribution into the industry of of what i 've been able to um, help uh, our industry in terms of um, managing uh, surgery site infections, which is uh, is a passion of mine, and also the legacy of being able to provide a good life for my family that 's valuable as well. I know a lot of people only look outside their world and it 's not popular right now in the United States to talk much about you know um, uh, creating a good life for yourself. It's almost fall out of fashion, but <clears throat> I'm very proud of the fact that I can make a good living for my family. And um, I've worked hard to, to get where I'm at and um, I don't apologize for it. So I think the legacy for me <clears throat> uh, will be the, uh, the company um, and the good kids that I leave behind. Mm. Well, that's, that's great. And I uh, love, love to hear that. Um, thanks. Thanks very much, Charlie. Um, uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for hanging out with me and Charlie today and hope you had as much fun as I did and that you got a chance to get your hopes up that you are good enough to chase your dreams. Um, head on over to businessjournals.com for all the show notes and we'll populate everything there that we've talked about today. Just type in Charlie in the search bar and uh, to reach out to Charlie, you know, just jump to vandastore.com and, um, you know, you can see more of what the business is doing and you can reach out to Charlie on there. Thank you very much, Ali, for being on the Business Journals podcast today, for sharing your story with us. We're very grateful. You are a true business general. Thank you so much for including me. Hey, what's up, Business Journals family? Thank you for joining me and for listening to the Business Journals podcast. Connect with me at Davis Mutabwa. That's D-A-V-I-S-M-U-T-A-B-W-A. Connect with me on Facebook, on Twitter, on LinkedIn. And you can certainly find me at our podcast blog, businessjournals.com. And while you're there, remember to access all the show notes, a ton of free resources, killer training, and so much more. Love you guys. Thank you for joining me. Ciao.